Okay, everyone. <laughs> Hello again. Uh, this is Manius Camille, the Full Metal Archivist, coming in for episode number six of the podcast, uh, Puro Palace Party. Uh, we're having a good time over here, and uh, appreciate Edgar uh, for keeping me here and allowing me to continue this podcast. We're going to keep it going uh, as long as he um, still wants to have us here. So that's hopefully for a while, but we will see. So today we're going to be talking uh, with folks over at the Urban Peace Institute. So that is a local nonprofit based out of Los Angeles that looks at community safety from a non-traditional um, kind of non-only public, uh, sorry, only policing uh, perspective. So you know when we think of public safety, I think that oftentimes we just think of the police. But there are other options that are available with more kind of more of a community support model that looks at some of the underlying issues and tries to help out and figure out why people are committing particular crimes or why there is a lack of safety in a community. So the conversation that we're going to have is based off of their 2019 report that they did on the city that covers a lot of topics around community safety. And, uh, you know, they came in and had a set of recommendations that they, they brought with them. So we're going to be looking at that. We're going to be providing the link uh, for that in the um, in the uh, description of the podcast. And for today, uh, hopefully, uh, we don't have this confirmed yet, but hopefully you just listened to the intro by Moises Vasquez. So I'm going to say we appreciate him, even though he hasn't sent the file yet, but he will, he will, and you're listening to the sweet tunes of Moises Vasquez. Right, everyone. Uh, so uh, thanks for joining us today on the podcast. Uh, this is going to be a little bit of a, of a first for us. We have two guests today, um, Fernando Rejon and Eric Lamb with the Urban Peace Institute. Uh, so they conducted a um, community safety assessment back in 2019 uh, of Santa Ana and kind of uh, met with a lot of folks over the course of about a year, year and a half. Um, you know, they'll be able to tell you a little bit more about the details as to, to how it all came about. Um, but, you know, at this particular moment in time, um, you know, it's really important that we take a critical look at the way that we uh, conduct community um, safety and we, you know, the, the types of um, investments that we make into uh, a city of, like Santa Ana that, you know, has a need for um for, uh, I guess, processes and procedures that uh, make the community safe, but, you know, thinking about it in creative and in different ways than uh, we might traditionally uh, understand community safety. So uh, with that, I'd uh, just like to introduce uh, uh, you all, and uh, if you can uh, tell me a bit about yourselves and uh, your organization. So um, thank you, Manny. My name is Fernando Rejon. I'm the executive director of the Urban Peace Institute. Uh, we implement violence reduction strategies and smart justice solutions to end violence and mass incarceration so communities can thrive. And so we've been on this path for years and, and um, a lot of our work is to help transform systems so that resources get to communities, um, to the community level. So whether it's training gang intervention workers, advocating for dollars, uh, providing community lawyering assistance, uh, working on policy, kind of state state level, national legislation, um, as well as at the community level, building collaboratives around safety that 
build platforms to for leadership from the community level to emerge to to start to um, dialogue and determine what community safety looks like and what we've seen is there's a big divide between public safety and community safety and so a lot of times public safety is from above where community safety is from below and what we do is we merge the two when you merge community safety and public safety you start to transform what we mean by community safety and what is invested in so a, a lot of our work is is focused on on that but building out a larger public safety infrastructure that is going to not rely just on law enforcement, but invest in community-based solutions to redefine what safety is. And my name is Eric Glam. I'm with the Urban Peace Institute as well. Um, and just to add to what Fernando is, is saying, I feel like uh, this community-based solution that, that Fernando is alluding to, I think inevitably are more trusted, more viable, um, but also they are solutions that are rooted in what they know their neighbors need. In other words, folks know their neighborhoods the best um, and oftentimes they're the, and not often, they're always, they're the best advocates. So part of that I think is um, like through this types of reports um, and data is collecting an understanding voice and community voice, um, but also, you know, seeing where, if, and how um, those voices can influence um, systems so that systems can actually be more responsive and aligned and um, uh, led by community. Cool. So, yeah, I guess just the um, you know, question for, for both of you is, you know, is um, you know how did uh, you, you come into this work? So what's the kind of uh, the personal narrative that got you all involved in, uh, you know, in this type of um, these types of studies and these types of, um, um, well, I guess it's not even um it's not just public policy, but there's a, there is definitely a little bit of an advocacy work that's going on here. Yeah, so my, my background's um, in community organizing. And so my, my work has kind of just led me to here. I, I think dealing with violence, um, dealing with gangs, dealing with police reform, really third rail issues. And especially right now, it's in the, our work is right in the kind of center of the national and even world dialogue. Um, but working on kind of these complex issues, um, particularly for me working with uh, the gang-involved population, um, it has really been the, to really understand what the, the struggle is, but also the stigma that's involved with that. And how do you transform how the, how do you transform the national narrative about how people view our communities and um, particularly the gang-involved community? Um, and, you know, our work is to build platforms to shine light on kind of the hidden wars and the hidden oppression that we've been seeing for, for generations, but also the, how do you transform systems to make them truly serve the communities that, that, they, are, um, that they are supposed to serve? And I think that's where my work as, as an organizer at the community level and really starting to build platforms for people to stand on, but now also how do you reshape power so that it will benefit our communities and benefit, you know, the larger society. My background is in uh, also community organizing and in education. Um, I was a teacher for a couple of years in, uh, in New York City um, and organizing around educational justice, particularly with youth. Um, and that background, I think, at, and early on, I think, um, you know, working, I worked in after school programs, so to have you, um, service provision is incredibly important from after school programs and, you know, mentoring youth and what have you and organizing around building power 
um, developing stronger analyses um, with people and learning from folks all the time. Um, and then ultimately, I think to, to what Fernando's talking about, I think is systems and policy. There's the interconnectedness around being rooted in um, uh, the spectrum of how folks understand issues, um, how they become more personalized, um, but also how folks become more empowered eventually, um, but also how folks become activated to make a change. Um, so I think there's different ways folks can enter the conversation. Um, and with UPI, I feel like it's a, a good space to understand and, and to talk through all three of those different kind of components from the practice, policy, and systems types of solutions. Um, and I think what, what, what brought our work particularly to Santa Ana, um, I think was we saw that Santa Ana being the county seat in Orange County, um, we are based in Los Angeles, we're a national nonprofit based in Los Angeles, but we saw Orange County as a, a strategic and a regional, um, of strategic and regional importance to begin to really look at, you know, how things are being done. Um, but we also saw Santa Ana as an opportunity to take the lead in the county around improving community safety, um, um, that they could be, that Santa Ana, the city, um, the, the lots of the service providers and a lot of the folks on the ground were poised, I think, to make a change in the right direction. Um, in the right direction, again, according to what they're, what they saw and what they see fit. Um, this report, if anything, began to hopefully unearth and lift up what was what we heard. Um, what we tried to do, I think, is really understand um, uh, the voices from all throughout the city, um, and then to you know to begin to at least paint a narrative or at least capture some data that could be helpful um, for whatever end of spectrum. Um, you see yourself. Right. So for, for those folks that haven't read the um, report yet, um, you know, what, what are the main findings that um, you, you can say that are, are kind of the takeaways uh, from it? The, the main findings are um, the top safety issue concerns, right? So the top safety issues that we found were homelessness, fear of deportation, drug sales and use, um, and gun and gang activity. So um, those were those are in order, more or less, right? And I think if anything, it, uh, it it was reflective of the time in 2019 when we when we did the assessment, right? I think um, you know homelessness had yeah, just cleared the the riverbed in Anaheim. Um, there was a disproportionate impact of homelessness um, in Santa Ana, um, particularly around uh, City Hall as well. Um, I think uh, the history of m much of the population. Fear of deportation is a real, very much of a real issue. Um, I think understanding um, the overlays of uh, immigration, fear of deportation, drugs, violence, and homelessness confounded, I think, uh, a, a, a level of of, um, of normalcy. Unfortunately, there's a, a you know a, a normalization of what's going on in the city, um, an apathy. Um, but also, there's um, with those issues, there also rose to the top around this report, um, a lack of trust in government and local government. That's with city officials, that's with police. We found that uh, the trust and credibility of law enforcement is half of what residents thought it should be. They rated, um, uh, they, the residents, the stakeholders saw that the importance of trust and credibility between police and community at almost a nine, but the actuality, the current level of trust and credibility is uh, less than five. So. It's less than half. Um, we also found that uh, schools, family, family members, and neighbors were amongst the highest-rated, trusted 
um, organizations and, um, and community. So in other words, um, there are some strong, and community-based organizations, there, there's some strong assets that need to be lifted up um, as viable um, sectors to address, um, but also that they play a role in community safety, whereas police and, and, uh, and uh, elected officials were rated the lowest in terms of response and trust. Um, so there was a, there's a gap, right? But I, must, I think there, so what the report began to paint was is there's issues, right? There's lack of trust, um, but also there is trust with certain areas. There are things to lift up. There are things that are working. Um, so that's generally what the report began to unearth. Right. And yeah, I, I definitely um, you know, saw that. And I, I think one of the you know, things that I was kind of the, the most curious about is it, it did overall seem as though this was, um, you know, based on a lot of um, you know, neighborhood in- interviews and um, kind of one-on-one communications with uh, different folks from, from around the city. Um, but I was wondering, like, you know, what other kind of studies and, and um, you know, reports can we point to that show, you know, what are some of those effective strategies beyond beyond just building trust? Like, what are actual uh, you know, types of programs that have kind of a nice track record or at least some track record of, you know, reducing the overall um, impact and uh, of violence or just kind of general uh, crime in a neighborhood or in a community? You know, what, where can we look to? So what we've seen in L.A. And, and we can also talk about other cities around the country and we're most kind of intimately familiar with Los Angeles is that in Los Angeles in 1992, we had over a thousand homicides just in the city alone. Uh, that was the height. For the last maybe 11 years in the city of LA, there's been less than 300 homicides, which is 300 too many. But we ended last year with 254 homicides. And so there's a there's a significant reduction in a lot of that has to do with $30 million that the city invests in targeted violence intervention and prevention services. So Law enforcement has their budget, and I think that's the topic of discussion nationally and in LA right now. But when you invest 30 million, 30 million isn't enough, but when you invest $30 million in building an infrastructure for former gang members to become intervention workers, become peacemakers, to enter to engage with the gang-involved population and provide alternatives to violence, provide resources, case management, engage their families, we saw violence. Um, dropped significantly. Um, and the evaluation uh, from the Mayor's Office of Gang Reduction and Youth Development, what we found is that when law enforcement alone responds to a, uh, a shooting, a gang-involved shooting, um, the likelihood of retaliation is about 40%. But when law enforcement responds to a gang-related shooting and intervention responds as well, separately, right, in their own lane, the likelihood of violence drops down to like less than 1%. And so the likelihood of retaliatory violence drops down to, you know, less than 1%. And so when we talk about investment in these strategies is that broadening the public safety infrastructure and investing in community-based solutions reduces violence and makes everyone safer. And so we've seen that in LA um, and we've been watching it, of course, you know, for over a decade. Um, In Chicago, where there's a lot of violence right now, uh, we're seeing these community-based solutions being invested in. They're building this huge infrastructure around um, street outreach workers, mental health services, trauma services, in order to engage youth um, on, in job development. And so 
a lot of that work, we're seeing some declines, even though it's, you know, it's spiking up and down. But when we see concerted investment that does not rely on law enforcement alone, we see violence go down, communities become safer, and they also become healthier. Right. Right. So I guess uh, we're, we are essentially arguing for then, right, is a, a systems-based approach that has multiple uh, ways to deal with a, a problem rather than you know, policing only. Um, so I definitely right. see that. Well, yeah, it's absolutely broadening the under the understanding of what public safety is. Um, the war on gangs and war on drugs really helped um, build build law enforcement's cachet. So I, I think in the between like 1986 and 2000, the investment in law enforcement nationally went up 174 percent. But also between 1980 and 2000, the prison population increased over 500 percent. So in the 80s and 90s, we saw this heavy investment in law enforcement and what what we were what we've been trying to do for the last decade and you know we've been successful in certain areas is to broaden that understanding and say it's not just law enforcement alone law enforcement alone will not create safe and healthy environments uh investment in community-based solutions in uh community-based organizations other service providers gang intervention and uh other um, resources that that the community needs really significantly uh, makes the community safer increases safety as well as um, people's health overall. Right. And, and I think I definitely see that uh, in the work that uh, Project Kinship is doing here in Orange County, uh, really kind of having um, on the ground knowledge of um, these types of inter- intervention acts. Um, the you know, thing that I'd want you to, to share with the audience, if you can, you know, how does how does that actually work, right? Because, you know, uh, one of the things that's in your report was um, something that I was never able to get from the city, but then uh, you, you all uh, you know, put this together pretty nicely where it was um, an actual kind of gang territories map. And, yeah, you know, between that, just living in the city, you're, you're kind of raised with an awareness of who's rivals with who, um, you know, which particular uh, gangs are either at war or at peace, right? I think you, you, you talked about this um this uh, experience that kids in our community have where they know how to basically navigate through these uh, unsafe streets um, because that's something that you have to do in order to survive. Um, so I was wondering if maybe you could um, you know, talk about uh, some of the, the technical aspects as to what a um, intervention worker does by understanding these different um, social relationships and how they stop violence. So someone told me when I was beginning this work, they said, Fernando, if you're going to climb a mountain, if you're going to climb Everest, you're going to need Sherpas. And so, so as we're trying to address the mountain of violence, especially gang-related violence, is that you need people who can guide and that know the terrain, that know the climate, that know where to move, when to move, and how. And so the investment in gang intervention workers are you know, uh, people that many times are, have been formerly gang-involved or formerly incarcerated that can go out there and engage active gang members because they know the terrain, they know how to read the signs, um, they know how they know when violence is when violence can happen, they know how to mediate, they know how they have relationships with people. So a lot of it is really based on their credibility, which we call the their license to operate, um, their ability to engage active gang members to provide alternatives to violence. And they're seen as credible. They're credible messengers because a lot of times the gang involved population, the only interaction, the only group that's focused on them is law enforcement. But when you have um, somebody who ha- who can build a rapport with them, that can talk to them, that can kind of see through uh, what their real needs are um, and not judge. And I think that's that's really the, the big thing is, is you don't judge. That's the, that's the first step. And provide and really listen, but also provide alternatives and resources. We start to see gang intervention workers kind of transform 
violence in, in communities. But it's also really important to, it's not just sending anyone out there. They have to go through stringent training. For us, we, we have a 140-hour certification course um, that all city contracted gang intervention workers go through um, in order to uh, be out there on the streets to provide services. So it's a lot of work. It's a lot of, there's a lot of personal development for street outreach workers, but they're mediating conflict. Um, they're engaging proactive, they're proactive, it's called proactive peace building. Um, they're engaging their uh, clients, providing case management, uh, working with their families, and then also interacting with other gang intervention workers to make sure that they can establish understandings between the, the different uh, the different groups in the community. And I, I like to add too, they're also connected to other services, right? And other agencies. In other words, for the folks, for the services that they can't provide, um, one of the things that we always talk to uh, interventionists about is, you know, never overpromise. Um, so they're very much, um, you know, real and real, but realistic um, with where uh, the communities are at, um, and you know, working with them um, step by step. Um, but they're connected to, let's say, if folks need to get a driver's license, right, or the job application, or if they're connected to someone at the community college or uh, the local shelter, right, or if they need some transitional housing. So in other words, like um, their their referrals too. In other words, right. So they're they're connected and have a, a broader understanding of the services that are needed, um, and they have them in their their back pocket. And but they have the relationships. So I think it's relationship based gang intervention is what was something that we really we uh, we value and we feel that is 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 really um, incredibly important in the, about building social capital in communities, um, so folks feel uh, more comfortable but also more connected. So, you know, we talked a, a lot um, about the, the the interventions that we have um, potentially for um, reducing gang violence. Now, are, are there kind of similar strategies that then also apply to what was the the number one issue at the time was um, you know kind of the the, the um, uh, homelessness uh, situation in Santa Ana? Um, is that something that you're also familiar with? Um, yeah, you know, anything kind of in that direction? Uh, less so. Um, I think uh, homelessness is, um, has been an issue for a long time, but I think for our organization, we've been focused on um, crime and violence, and more specifically with gang violence and, and, and state violence, which can be law enforcement, um, and community violence, right? So um, to that extent, uh, not so much. Yeah, that, yeah, no, no worries. I, I, I appreciate anyone that's like, okay, I'm a subject expert in, in this, and this is what we do, and that's why, why you're on. Um, so appreciate that. Yeah. Just to add, there's, I mean, there's a similar approach, I, th I think, in, in outreaching the homeless population to engage them and having credibility and building relationships and then really assessing what their needs are and connecting them to resources. Um, some of the gang intervention workers we work with in the city, they um, there's a lot of um, the homeless homies, they call them, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, they just they yeah. got out or, you know, they're gang involved or, or, or they got they got on that track of, you know, drug use to where they need specific services. And so. Um, some of the outreach reaches out to them to to um, help provide services for them as well. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it seems like it would would make a lot of sense. And now, um, with the you kind of um, yes, lower level like drug trafficking and kind of like uh, drug use, it seems that for a very long time in this country, it's been a uh, uh, enforcement only. So there's really not been any kind of understanding as far as it being um, any form of 
medical issue, right? So it's not like the Portuguese model where everyone basically gets a treatment option and then, um, you know, low level offenders are basically um, given support network, or, you know, a, a viable support network. So it, it seems like nationally that we, that that boat might be turning a little bit. It's a very big uh, boat with a, you know, I'm not sure what the DEA's budget, but I'm sure it's much more than the community health, any kind of community health worker initiative uh, out there. Um so I don't know if y'all can uh, talk about maybe some of the, the changing conversation around uh, uh, drug use and kind of how to, to tackle that from a kind of community safety perspective. Well, I, I think there's a, a big push to provide treatment and, and alternatives. Um, there's even um, the establishment of centers where people can actually get treatment, but also get um, some type of, of, of um, some type of uh, treatment via like uh, what they call methadone clinics. Right. And so, you know, there's, there's a movement around that. And, you know, sometimes people don't want them in their communities because, you know, it, it attracts uh, people who, who have substance abuse issues. But I, I think the treatment and understanding of, of addiction, um, we need to kind of change that narrative about that. Right. If, if people are sick, they need to be treated. And I think it's, it's evident when we looked at the crack cocaine epidemic versus the opioid epidemic. The crack cocaine epidemic was criminalized. The opioid epidemic is not, right? The opioid epidemic, it's more focused on, well, people need treatment and people need help. And there's a racialized aspect to that as well. So I think that's um, something for, for further conversation and to really think about in this country when we're talking about, um, you know, is, is the value of this country to be punitive and have the most people incarcerated than any other country in the, in the, in the world? Or is it to provide treatment and uh, rehabilitation for, for folks that, that need that. And to tack on to that a little bit further too, I that's, it goes back to the investment question too, I feel like, right? So are we going to invest on the front end um, around services, preventative measures, but also, you know, re-entry transitional um, substance abuse, mental health services, or are we going to lock folks up longer? Um, right. So I think, I mean, there's a, and that conversation is is it's definitely current. It's happening, right? Um, it goes, it's very much connected to the law enforcement discussion around investment as well. So I think there's a, a what we're, I think what we what we try to do I think is to paint a picture that there is a comprehensive picture of community safety, right? Law enforcement alone um, is not the answer, but that there's law enforcement plays a, a role, but there's also other aspects to community safety, right? Like mental health, like substance abuse, um, like DV, um, like prevention measures. Um, like community-based organizations, like churches, um, everyone. There's a there's a local safety net, like you're like you're suggesting earlier, right? How can we strengthen that local safety net infrastructure um, to promote community health, so that when folks do transition back or before folks go off the rails, there's services in place. Yeah, no, that uh, it does uh, make make a lot more sense, kind of thinking thinking of things comprehensively and. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, I've been trying to familiarize my, myself with the topic a, l- a little bit more was uh, reading, um, uh, I guess, Alex uh, Vitali's work. So his book has been making kind of the rounds on the end of policing. Um, and you know, at least um, what I understood from kind of the quick reading there was to start focusing in on the idea of outcomes. So like, what are we looking to do, right? It's like, okay, we want to have a certain amount of reduction in the number of homicides. Uh, we're looking to have less people that are, that are addicted. Um, you know, so like, how do we get to there versus starting with this um, idea that, okay, well, we only have this law enforcement tool and how do we punish? Um, so I think that goes back directly to, to what you're saying with the, 
um, idea of like, are we just, um, is this entire system built up to be a punitive system or is it looking to actually have better outcomes? And, you know, with all this, um, that's kind of, you know, an, an ongoing uh, emergent conversation that is rapidly um, evolving. You know, what's, what has the last uh, week and a half done for the conversation around community safety, right? So this is obviously kind of an inflection point. So what have you seen that's, that's happening right now at the national and kind of state and local level or, or around this evolving conversation of a different approach to community safety? So it's, it's, it's really been a, a catalyst for conversations that we've been pushing for, for a long time. And so, you know, Black Lives Matter has become an international movement. Uh, which is wonderful. I think for us, it's um, really questioning how can we reimagine what public safety looks like? And I think there's the, the movement to defund police. That's in the conversation where you have more of the right wing, you know, utilizing that against against the left and kind of getting into part, partisan politics saying you want to get rid of the police. I, I don't think police will be abolished. Um, but when we talk about investments is when we look at uh, city budgets throughout the country is that law enforcement gets you know the lion's share of, of of the budget right. But if we're trying to reimagine public safety, we have to look at kind of multiple budgets throughout the city, um, including law enforcement, in order to pull resources to say when we're reimagining public safety, how can we invest in in community community solutions? How can we based in uh, invest in community infrastructure that is actually going to achieve the outcomes that we desire? So whether it's rehabilitation, lowering the mass incarceration rate. Um, whether it's uh, helping kids, getting on, them on track with education. And I think as we're broadening the frame of public safety, the public safety infrastructure, you know, given the pandemic, we have to broaden the frame of public health. And public health and public safety intertwine. And so the council member in Minneapolis is talking about we need a public health approach to public safety. And that really aligns with, with, some, with our thinking and, and what we've been advocating for for years is that a public health approach to public safety needs to um, needs to make sure that there is significant investment in ensuring public health. And so what we talk a lot about is without safety, you, you can't you cannot thrive without safety. You cannot get a good education. So safety is one of the first rights that we have. Um, if we it's it's one it's one thing to have data that says, okay, you're safe because there's only been one homicide in five years, but it's also people's sense of safety, the perceptions of safety. And so people's perceptions of safety um, actually dictate how they live. It dictates how they feel. Toxic stress, do they feel listened to? Um, that I think that is a, a key part when we're looking at community health. And so when we, when we cross public safety and public health, we have to look at it from a a larger perspective. It's not a law enforcement issue alone. It's not all on the shoulders of law enforcement to address all the multiple issues that we're trying to address. Law enforcement has a very specific role. I think the, the mission of law enforcement needs to change, um, but also, you know, mindset of, of certain officers. It can't be us versus them anymore. We need to transform that, and we need to transform the mission of policing to go from warrior policing to guardian policing. If we can get the, the mission of police to change and invest in a broader sense of what public safety is by building more infrastructure that uh, aligns more with community needs and listens, I think we can we can radically change how policing is done and how public safety is viewed in this country and reduce the, the incarceration rate at the same time. 
Yeah, no, I, yeah, love it and I hear you. And I, I totally um, uh, you know, feel that that is uh, something that we're all kind of looking to and I think kind of questioning about some basic assumptions. And, you know, when you kind of talk about, you know, toxic stress. So, yeah, for me, it's um, I think one of the you know, things that kind of came out of um, out of the um, recent um, kind of uprising uh, that, that's going on in this country. I think someone was asking a general question. It's like, yo, um, you know, won't, you know, how old were you uh, the first time a police officer pulled a gun on you, right? And, you know, my honest answer to that would be 12. So that's, you know, at least on the personal level, there's an, kind of an entire community here in the, the city that experienced the uh, drug war of the 90s uh, with SWAT teams and, and helicopters and uh, armored personnel carriers, right? That is something that, was a heavily militarized response to um, a public safety issue, and that those um, kind of I- impacts are not necessarily easily measured, right? There's no stats, um, you know, on that that we can re- readily pull, but is part of the collective uh, experience of a uh, community here in, in Central Santa Ana, uh, of which I personally you know, experienced growing up. And yeah, it's it's always something that's it's left a mark. Um, I was one of the lucky ones that kind of managed to to deal with my um, my own stress from that. But there were a lot of folks that didn't. And you know now it's like you know what do we do together as a community uh, to kind of heal some of those divides? And how do we support organizations that are looking to to do that? So like what what can people do? I think one of the things that folks can do, I think, is uh, like uh, you suggested, I think, around personal reflection, right? Um, examining their own assumptions um, around about themselves, but also around systems, um, and also the goal, um, the feel, the sense, um, uh, and, the, and the realities of community. Um, in other words, what role do they play specifically? Um, and part of that... Um, that reflection, I think, lends itself to what's needed, right? Because folks are very aware of, I think, of the issues. Um, but what's needed, what's next, I think, is, is a rallying call, right? In other words, I feel like community investment, leadership development um, is critical, right? In other words, we can have the, all the investments in, in systems all day, but without actual community investment, capacity development, um, for folks giving to give them platform and spaces, um, and that's not just you know commissions or or um, task forces, right? Or neighborhood council. It's other. It, it, those are great ways, right? Don't get me wrong. Those are great ways to do it, but things that actually have teeth to push will change. In other words, when city council or when law enforcement actually responds in meaningful ways to community around some of their uh, suggestions or solutions that it's meaningful dialogue. Um, it's not us versus them. It's not a power thing, which I know inevitably is very much, <laughs> it's very complex, right? Um, but it's re it's reshifting who can, who, uh, can lead and who, um, actually has voice and influence over what happens in their community. That's just one way I'm thinking about it. I think it's just, it's community leadership and, and development. Um, it's organizing, it's building power. Um, it starts with yourself. Um, and then as a result, it, I think it, it moves into action. 
Yeah, definitely organize. Back to the organizing background is, is people need to continue organizing. But but I think, you know, this this moment is um, shifting conversations at least, right? And, you know, when you have kind of diverse groups of people protesting and you have white people holding Black Lives Matter signs, that's different than it was. There was a lot of white allies back in the civil rights movement. Um, but, you know, now it's, it's, you know, it's exploded. But, you know, also... You know, there was a uh, piece that I was working on. It was called, you know, Black Lives Demand Freedom, White Guilt and White Supremacy Trending. Right. And so part of the conversation for us is when people are saying that, hey, we want to end systemic racism. We want to uh, end these kind of entrenched policies that uh, have a negative impact on our communities. It's going to go beyond, I think, what some folks are willing to do. and. You know, for example, we're going to, I think from law enforcement, we'll get some, uh, they'll go after some low hanging fruit and it'll be window dressing. Hey, look, we made some changes, but it's not systemic or transformative. And so that's why we push for a change in, in the mission of policing, as opposed to we're going to change some of our use of force policies. And that's actually going to make it better for brown and black people. Right. And so when, when we look at the, the moment and we look at people challenging racism and actively, openly talking about systemic racism. When you have the uh, NFL commissioner taking a knee after you know they they slapped Ka- uh, Kaepernick to the side, a lot of the, for me that that's very those are very superficial apologies, but also they're it's business acumen as well. And so we don't want window dressing transformation. We're really pushing for a transformation that is going to be meaningful and really change the power dynamics. So as Eric's talking about building power from below, right, with organizations, is that we have to hold systems accountable and restructure them radically. And like we're saying, change the mission of some of these organizations to treat people more humanely, right, and to change the way they engage with community. And I think in our report, that was you know one of the major findings, but there's such a big gap between local government and community needs. And there's a high level of distrust, which includes with law enforcement. And so I, th- I think law enforcement had a hard time accepting that. I mean, they probably still don't accept it. Maybe now they, they might be open to it, right? But those are the challenges. You know, when we meet with uh, city officials in, in Santana, you know, they're, they're hard conversations, right? The orange curtain is real, even in Santana, right? But then, for example, when we met with the school district, the school district was open. They talked about how they wanted to support families, how they wanted to support their students, how they worked with the school police, kind of night and day in approaches. And so that's why we really highlighted what the school district was doing, because there was more care, more listening, uh, and more of the interest of the community in mind in all the conversations that we had. And so I think that's a, an asset to build from, I think, in the city of Santana within the context of this larger conversation nationally um, that, that, that I was um, outlining earlier. No, oh, yeah. And, and I think that that's one of the, um, you know, the big things from the, that I, I found actually surprising was that there was no participation uh, beyond, uh, or at least directly kind of from the chief's office um, or kind of the, um, what is it? The, the police department command structure, um, you know, outside of the community uh, programs, or like with the the PAL program, so the um, what is it, the Police Activity League or Athletic Activity League? Um, the yeah, other thing was um, if I'm trying to figure out like how to actually kind of com- communicate with like different segments of the population. Um, so cor- correct me if I'm wrong, but the way that I read it was it was a lot of folks that were from 
uh, central Santa Ana or kind of tied into the greater um, Santa Ana Building a Healthy Community Network that, that we're participants. Um, and, you know, what, what are the things that we kind of see, at least in the city of, of Santa Ana, is that we have um, different neighborhood constituent groups that kind of clamor for different aspects of, of you know, public safety, where we have, I would say, a very um, vocal and uh, politically active um, set of voters that are consistent voters that have been consistently funding additional police because they um, want to decrease property crimes, they want to increase public safety, and um, have had a much more kind of conservative uh, view on um, the definition of public safety. And I I don't know how we bring in maybe some of those folks into the conversation, or if you you did actually kind of have have them. I just didn't uh, read that uh, kind of within the methodology, though, that, and that was something that I was a little bit um, curious about as well. Yeah, for in terms of outreach, um, we wanted to talk to everybody um, as much as we could. I think uh, we, and even with uh, working with Santa Ana PD, um, we actually stalled the process um, so we could get their, um, you know, their involvement and participation. Uh, we waited as long as we could. We tried to work with Chief. Um, we met with them a couple uh, a couple times um, at headquarters, and uh, ultimately, it was just we, we waited too long, and we had to give it a go. In other words, that the work had to be done, um, but also folks were 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 ready. In other words, that their their voices wanted to be heard. Um, so, as far as that work and outreach, we worked with uh, a methodology. We did our best to try to cover the whole city. Um, and that was definitely through uh, focus groups, interviews, and surveys. Um, folks did do um, surveys. We tried to administer surveys through community-based organizations, um, through churches, um, through folks who were willing and able um, to, to, to administer surveys. We also worked with residents um, to, um, to administer surveys as well and train those residents on administering those because uh, oftentimes uh, residents are the ones who, again, can build trust and rapport and have uh, trust and credibility and as a result we're able to get much more richer answers through surveys and um, folks were uh, invited to participate in focus groups um, in English or in Spanish um, and and, and convenient times Um, and uh, we did focus groups with uh, like groups like Comlink um, to uh, working with uh, the señoras um, the mothers of of, uh, after school children who participate in kid works you know, to working with promotoras at LHA, um, working with getting involved folks at Hard Kinship. Um, I mean, so we did our best to cover all the bases. Um, we were also denied a couple of times or folks didn't respond after multiple times of outreach. Um, but ultimately, um, we did our best to cover um, the whole city um, and, and to gather a representative sample of, uh, of what's going on. Um, All right. No, I, I appreciate that. And I, and I know for me, it's always, um, it's, it's tough, right? The, the engagement portion is always kind of a, a challenge to try to get people to, to, to respond. And, you know, for me, I really just ask it because it was something that uh, was brought up, um, from, uh, one of the Facebook comments is like, as far as, uh, you know, questions, um, 
that people wanted wanted to know about. And a lot of the questions actually weren't even related to, to the study. So that was, you know, provided the link. But a lot of folks were really just kind of um, angry about the, the, the overall cu- level of customer service. And I think your your, um, your report really points to that, where it's just the, um, the nature of the interaction between officers and community members and how, you know, small negative interactions going to build up over time to develop a less than stellar reputation. So I, I don't know if there's anything that uh, you all have seen um, as it relates to just better ways to um, to have interactions or like kind of you know departments that are trying to to kind of change the way and turn stuff around so that they're not seen so um, neg- negatively. So uh, our by, founder, by our co-founder Connie Rice, a longtime civil rights attorney, um, helped develop the program um, in the LAPD called the Community Safety Partnership. And the community safety partnership changes the incentives for officers to police communities of color that have historically high levels of distrust with law enforcement. And part of why changing incentives is important because with law enforcement, if you incentivize arrest, you're going to get arrest. You know, if you if you incentivize um, tickets, you're going to get a lot of tickets. This program incentivizes trust building and relationship building in the community. And so if that is incentivized, that's what officers are going to do. So that's what the, those are the expectations of the command in LAPD. And so it started off in uh, four areas, um, three housing developments in Watts and one in Ramona Gardens in Bull Heights. And it had, it's grown to, I think it's about eight or nine sites now, um, expanded to the San Fernando Valley, South Park, Harvard Park. And they're looking at, the mayor just recently announced that he wanted to expand it citywide. So easier said than done. I think the key to the community safety partnership is one is to get law enforcement to engage people in a more dignified way and to focus on not arrest, um, to focus more on diversion, to focus more on building relationships, supporting community, um, and arrest really as, as a last resort. Right? And so when we what we found is that when officers, when communities feels officers are there to protect them, they'll be, you know, the, all law enforcement officers will be embraced. But if they feel they're there as occupiers, the community is going to put up their barriers and, and not let them in. And so part of the part of the challenge that, that we've seen is that it's hard to change the DNA of law enforcement. And programs like this have demonstrated success. There's a recent evaluation that came out from UCLA um, that um, that evaluated uh, two, two of the nine sites um, and started with two, two of the first sites in 2011. So. There's, there's some track record and some um, work that's, you know, that's been done. But what we've seen is that it's actually focused, it's actually increased trust between community and law enforcement. I think one of the gaps that we see, though, is one is kind of fidelity to the model. So making sure that, you know, yeah, it's great, sounds good, it's a kind of the showpiece, but how do you institutionalize it within the departments where the department actually really invests dollars um, into the CSP program to strengthen it? And that it maintains model fidelity. The other piece, and this is one that's really overlooked many times when you're looking at community policing strategies, because a lot of times it's just coffee with a cop or, hey, we're gonna work with people that like us. We're gonna work with our cheerleaders. It's more so about working with the people that don't like you, the people that are scared of you, the people that have historic distrust of you and to build relationships with them. And so community investment is key. You cannot have police accountability if there's no investment in community leadership and community-based organizations that can provide a social service infrastructure that a lot of times is non-existent in the communities that we serve. And so 
that heavy investment in building infrastructure that broadens the idea of public safety, where it's not just going to be these cops that are going to come in and be nice and, and coach us, you know, and, and kind of watch us grow up. But it's more so about building community, um, community infrastructure to create community safety kind of in partnership with this type of public trust policing that, that we're talking about. And part of it is institutionalizing within the department, changing the incentives and getting officers to understand that they're not there as warriors, they're there as guardians. Right. And, you know, a lot of what I'm hearing is definitely around that kind of, um, you know, changing of the mindset. And, um, you know, one of my concerns had always uh, kind of been around the idea of like how, um, you know, I, I understand that uh, police officers you know, you know, and their families want everyone to you know, come home safely at the end of the, the shift. Right. And that is a, a concern that, you know, you're going into a profession that is um, higher risk than, than average. Um, but that uh, at least to me, it seemed as though some of the current uh, training apparatuses that we have in place overestimate the um, the likelihood of a deadly or potentially dangerous encounter, right? So I, I think uh, the thing that comes to mind are the sim- sim- simulation um, kind of uh, shooters that the the a lot of the department trainings kind of um, enact, where it's like one out of every two incidences results in a shooting. And um, I, I don't know if there's anything... Um, you know, study-wise that you can point to as to how police officers are trained to kind of always you know, be on edge or if that's shifted over time. Because uh, that's something that I always, I kind of felt weird about, like going through that uh, simulation trainer because it seemed like highly unlikely that one out of every two incidents is going to result in someone Yeah, I mean, that, that goes back to changing the us versus them mentality. Um, it goes back to training in the academy. Um, yes, officers need to be safe. Officers, of course, want to go home to their families. And, and I think that's priority for for a lot of departments. You know, one of the things our, our colleague reminded us of is that, you know, when, especially during these protests, when they're talking about non-lethal rounds, they're not non-lethal, they're less lethal. We've seen people, you know, lose lose an eye, um, uh, a protester in Long Beach lost a finger. I mean, they're, they're, you know, and they could actually create death, right? And so I think when we're looking at what people are asking for, or even alternatives, right, to to shooting, right? What other alternatives? How do you de-escalate? How do you buy time? How do you find cover? How do you not escalate a situation or deal with the situation without using lethal force? And I think those are the conver- those are the conversations that are that are are happening. And you know, really, you want you know any department, any command staff, any community member wants law enforcement to be safe, right? There's there's some reliance on law enforcement. But I think changing the practices and the mindset are key. And so we talk about changing the mission. That's one thing. But it's also changing the mindset of officers. So that goes back to how they're training, who they select, where they're hired from, what is their background. Do they have a military background? Do they have trauma that can be triggered when they're out there in the community? What are the expectations of officers when they're engaging the community? If the expectations are that they don't have to engage in customer service, then you're going to get... Uh, you're going to get a negative response from from community. But if they're there, they explain to you, they're there to engage, they're there to offer resources and support. And it's not just, they're not just seen as someone who's going to come and make an arrest. I think it changes the expectation and the understanding of, of what law enforcement can be. Something to add to that too. I feel like it's not necessarily what officers do, it's how they do it, right? I think it's, um, it goes back to that customer service aspect of things. It's, 
It's really the approach, the tone, the body language. Um, it's the soft skills, right? And I think officers oftentimes are trained in those hard technical, strategic tactical skills, where soft skills are actually just as, if not more important. In other words, knowing what they're good at, right? And if they're triggered by working uh, with gang involved folks, they like, I don't think they should be gang officers then, right? In other words, if there's a lane for other institutions, organizations that might have um, more impact and influence over those particular populations that law enforcement should consider working and partnering with. That there's a crisis response protocol that's connected, that's coordinated, um, that that is not just law enforcement alone, but that lifts up other skill sets that go beyond what their own skill set is. In other words, you, we all have limits in terms of what we're good at. Other folks specialize like subject, like subject matter experts in certain things, whether it be homeless, substance abuse, mental abuse, DV, gangs. Um, there's folks who might know a little bit more than you, and that's okay to understand. There's folks who certainly know a lot more than me, right? And that's okay to understand, to accept, but also to work with and potentially um, coordinate and collaborate with or have a professional understanding around with. Um, and I feel like that's something that needs to shift and challenge, uh, needs to be challenged within the law enforcement mindset. Right, and I'd like you, if you, if you can, to explain there and maybe go into a little bit more depth into that term, because I, I really like that phrase, and um, I don't know if it is like a technical aspect where you said like crisis response team or crisis response, response protocol. Um, because I'm I'm imagining one thing, but I, I sure. definitely I, I want to make um, sure so I have a good understanding response, of that phrase. It could be let's say if it's a, a shooting, um, it could be something like COVID, right? Um, any any time that's deemed as a crisis, right? And what the response is is who responds. Um, right now, um, there's a potential bill in the state of California um, that's lifting up a pilot program around alternative responders, alternative responses to crises, right? That could include mental health workers, substance abuse, um, DV folks, social services, um, with law enforcement, or as an alternative to law enforcement, right? So it's really understanding what the issue is and appropriately responding. And a protocol is really about a step-by-step -step protocol, right? Um, it's really about understanding how the information is communicated, who um, is to respond, right? If it's law enforcement or if it's mental health. Um, and how folks across interagency or even with community-based organizations are communicating that wraparound service, right? So let's say law enforcement responds and it's something with um, a mental health issue. Um, law enforcement can refer or actually have the mental health responder respond accordingly, let law enforcement know what's, what's going on, here's the follow-up, this is the plan, um, and it's, it's, a, it's a part of understanding that it's not just um, a one-time only crisis, but there's a prevention uh, before that's building infrastructure like the proactive peace building to post in other words that there's some services that, that follow up afterwards and that there's a plan for this client or this family or what have you all right cool Th thank you for that um you know, i definitely um you see the value in having alternative um responders just because it doesn't seem like yeah, in any other situation in in, in life, uh, we would always kind of respond with the same tactic, uh, given you know very uh, different circumstances. So it is important to have a you know variety of tools available. 
Um, and you know, I'd be interested in kind of uh, plopping in some information. So if you can send me some links, um, you know, anything that you think that the audience should be kind of aware of news wise or, um, you know, support, we can kind of add some links to the, to the podcast. That way uh, folks can kind of look that up. Um, you know, right now you know, we, you know, I don't know how much more time y'all have. Um, it's, it's hitting 11 o'clock. I'm still game to keep talking, uh, but it's, it's really up to, up to your schedule. Um, and I'll kind of adjust my questions. Sure, I mean, I have, I have a few minutes. Yeah, a few minutes is fine. Okay, uh, Eric, cool too. Okay, uh, so a few minutes is not a, not an additional half hours. So I will respect your your time. Um, so you know, just to kind of uh, close off, is that we have a series of recommendations at the end. So I don't know if we can quickly go through them, and then I just have one more question. Um, you know, at the end of that. So however much detail you want to go into it. Um, so I don't know if you have the your your, your own report in front of you. I'm, I'm looking at it over here. Um, but if you can just kind of go over the basic suggestions and then just one final question. Sure. To um, we wrote the recommendation in buckets, right? So in other words, I think there's some larger overarching themes that can be considered. Number one, I feel like um, Santa Ana is on the right track. In other words, I think there's existing ideas, some great services, some great assets, um, some great voices um, that are really that are already pushing on what's next. Um, so I think that's the general tone for recommendation one, which is really about, you know, I, I think there's there's things that are working, but things that certainly can be more that it can be invested in more strategically, and that they can be built out more robustly. Um, two, I think we talked a lot about this earlier. I think is broadening the view of community safety um, and who actually plays and what role folks have in community safety. That it's not just law enforcement. When we think about public safety dollars, um, that it is it, it can be coordinated in a in a, in a, in a comprehensive way um, that really begins to lift up other strategies um, like we talked about earlier, right? Um, and then the the third recommendation is considering specific targeted ge- geographies, right? There's overlays I think with social services, um, with crime and violence. Um, with density um, that can be considered in terms of where maybe specific you know districts um, where we can focus on. In other words, there could be pilot programs. Um, there can be maybe like a, that, that the idea of having um, a coordinated response team um, that can you know maybe be considered. Um, that there's areas specifically that have higher crimes than others that should be that have that should have more. Um, Number one, I think, is, you know, building better trust, as Fernando was talking about, that should be prioritized in terms of not only how systems um, are accessed or viewed, um, but also how systems are actually utilized. But in addition, that there's there's overlay of community-based organizations that are there, too, and how we can actually leverage and maybe build some some local safety collaboratives around what it looks like um, to meaningfully lift up issues, but also solutions in those particular areas. and then uh, lastly, um, and there's much more detail in the actual report, um, I think is really beginning to make real investment um, in, uh, in community. I think ultimately um, what that means is seeing community-based organizations, you know, churches, um, the schools, um, as real partners in community safety. Um, in other words, and the budget should reflect that, right? Um, um, budget transparency, I think, is, is key. 
um, but also having real outcomes and measurable outcomes and, and accountability for all the folks across the across the spectrum to understand what role they play and how they specifically play it. Um, I think there's conversations to be had, um, but ultimately, um, let's let's actually put the, our, our dollars where where we where we mean it, right? Um, and and not play to um, you know to outside influences or special interest groups, um, but really respond and uh, uh, listen and um, put community voice at the lead of um, how budgets are prioritized. All right. Yeah. So that was an awesome summary. And, um, I, now that we went through that summary, I, I now I feel like I have like five more questions, but I'll, I'll keep it fairly, <laughs> fairly limited. Um, and, and it, it's really just, a, I guess the first one is to, to the point that you had made about, you know, special interest. And I would definitely be yelled at by the audience, um, and myself later on, if we didn't uh, talk about, uh, the influence of, uh, police unions kind of in shaping local policies, right? So what does that look like? Because, you know, so um, for those that know me, I'm a kind of left of center, um, you know, Democrat that uh, believes in unions and uh, the right for collective bargaining. Um, but at the same time, I'm very concerned with a lot of money coming in uh, to skew public policy in favor of one particular interest group. And, you know, here in the city of Santa Ana, we essentially have um, $750,000 or five hundred to $750,000 that comes in uh, from the uh, Police Officers Association every cycle. Um, so that is by far the biggest um, uh, financial contributor to any uh, campaign here locally. And, uh, yeah, just uh, what you all are seeing on that subject and kind of suggestions and, you know, a little bit of an outside lens as to kind of um, how that shapes the conversation. Yeah, I, I, think, around community safety. I, I think, as you said earlier, when we looked at the militarization of police with the war on gangs and war on drugs and the increased funding, right? So nationally, uh, law enforcement agencies across the country account for $100 billion in funding. Um, LAPD's budget is about, I think, $1.6 million. Uh, $1.6 billion. Um, so any any law enforcement agency across the country, they're gonna have the lion's share of, of budget, right? Um, and so that, you know, that's been built up because of the mass incarceration system and 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 the wars on drugs and the war on gangs. And I think police unions have a lot of power. And right now I think they're circling the wagons. So we had the the leader of the police union in LA say that the mayor of Los Angeles was suffering from mental issues from the pandemic and, and the protests because he wanted to cut the budget by from 100 million for, by 100 million to 150 million dollars right and so there's a lot of power in unions and I think everything that we were hearing and listening to and you know a lot of times when we do assessments is we listen to what people are saying of course we, we talk to as many people as we can but it's also understanding reading between the lines and understanding what are the challenges in each community or in each city. And in, in Santana, it's, there's a power dynamic. And the power dynamic is that law enforcement, um, particularly the, the police unions, had a lot of, uh, had a, a lot of say in, in how things were run. And so when we talk about special interest groups and how they can kind of dictate how, how a city is run, who, who's in office, who's next, is that we have to be uh, clear about that. We have to be very understanding about how that dynamic works, but then also 
be able to build power from the community level that counterbalances that. And I think it's true for a lot of Orange County. I mean, what we've seen in, in different cities as well, um, Santana being one of them. And so that is, that's something that the city needs to face, that the community needs to face. But also, you know, at the end of our report is, you know, we're really encouraged because we're talking about since that next generation, I think you probably being one of them, it, the next generation of leaders is really what's going to push Santana beyond the tipping point. And what we're hoping is that as things are evolving, as it's going from, you know, moving, you know, the, the policies and the um, and the voting is shifting in Orange County generally, Santana can really have a, a leadership responsibility in helping to push that change forward. And I think it's that, it's that next generation that we're listening to and that we're hearing that are going to be the next leaders that are going to take it to that point. Cool. And well, yeah, thank you for that. Uh, for yeah, I'm trying to do my, my small little part. Um, I mostly like sitting at home and learning about historical stuff or playing video games, but um, you know, we got to do what we got to do. Right. Um, <laughs> the, yeah, thing that I, I I guess I always like to engage in, um, as, just as a, like a thought experiment, is like magic wand thinking, right? It's like if we could change any like one thing um, overnight, and we had the, the authority, the power, the money, you know, to actually make it uh, happen, you know, what would that be in this area? So, if you had a magic wand, you could basically do uh, whatever needed to get done. What would be that one thing you could change to make the situation better? I would uh, I would erase fear from the minds of people living in Santana. Yeah, very much connected to the fear aspect of, um, I think is, uh, or connected to fear, I think is the level of, uh, of comfort, um, being able to speak their opinion and their, and their, and their voice. Right. Um, I feel like, uh, it's there, but it's hidden. I think there's fear generally. Um, and as a result, um, there's not enough of the right type of pressure to make things shift. All right. Well, yeah, definitely want to, yeah, thank you all. Um, uh, or you too. Um, I don't know if you all or ye all is, um, requires three or four people. I'm not really sure. I just, um, not from the South, but I actually, it's actually a metal thing. Um, so there's a, a band that I listened to that had a, um, a song called curse ye all men. So, um, yeah, I, I started saying this in high school, but it's like, I'm not yeah, no Southern thing, but I like, like the phrase. Um, but anyways, thank you all uh, for, for being here. A um, little bit of a digression there. The you know, thing, I guess, I just want to give you an opportunity to, to anything else you'd like to add, um, you know, things that people should get involved with, that whatever you, you want to talk about. Um, as long as you want to talk about it, I'll be here. But obviously, you have um, the, the office uh, to get back to. <laughs> I mean, I would say, you know, you know keep organizing, uh, keep engaging, keep holding uh, public officials accountable for, um, for what, what your needs are in the city. Um, so I think Santana's, you know, reaching that tipping point, um, and and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna see it happen. And Santana's gonna be a, um, one of the cities that's gonna take the lead um, in Orange County. So we're really hopeful for that, and uh, we'd like to support it. Yeah, I would say keep pushing, don't give up. Um, I think uh, there's a uh, there's already solutions. Folks have the ideas. Um, let's make them happen. Let's let's um, let's bring folks together around it, and and, and let's push.
so you know that was a uh, uh, interesting conversation uh, as always uh, thank you for tuning in I you know personally um, yeah, I don't know how much it came across, but uh, you know the topic of community safety is um, you know near and dear to, to my heart. Um, so again, you know, growing up Central Santa Ana, um, you know during the '90s, uh, the kind of war on on drugs was definitely something that uh, our neighborhood experienced. The kind of um, height of gang violence there around '94, with about 100 homicides occurring in the city and uh, shootings every night. The need for public safety is, is very real in a community like ours. Uh, but you know, to do it and tackle it in a way that actually resolves the issues rather than suppresses, I think is a very important direction to take this country in. And, you know, Santa Ana can be a leader in that and we can all come together and figure out what those solutions are to make our community safer and to have a more vibrant um, you know, set of life opportunities for those that uh, grow up here. I, I think we really need to take a deep consideration too. So again, appreciate uh, Eric Lamb and um, and um, you know the director from the uh, Urban Plan- Urban uh, Peace Institute coming in today. So that's um, you know something that uh, just appreciate folks that are doing the on the ground work and that you know we need to develop these networks uh, nationally and um, you know regionally at least you know to not be so afraid of our neighbor to the to the north, um, even if we are a very distinct entity um, as a, a different uh, county. The you know work here uh, as always um, you know appreciate Edgar Silva with the um, Michael Scott Paper Company Studios um, or Iron Lion Studios as he prefers to call it and uh, appreciate you the the listener uh, thank you all for the Facebook comments we tried to incorporate some of those. Um, questions into the conversation and hopefully we covered uh, uh, some of them if we didn't get to them I, I, I apologize uh, but we, we tried our best to kind of get around uh, with the time constraint and uh, yeah so just thank you for listening uh, let me know um, what you think uh, we're going to try to keep these going and uh, see what the next topic is so you know in memory of George Floyd uh, Black Lives Matter and let's uh, make sure to do the changes that we need to see in the world <laughs> <laughs>